Let's stand as we open in worship. Prepare our hearts. 
This morning. Good. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. All right. We're going to start with our scripture memory this morning. We're going to be starting a new month, so we have a new verse. We're in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7 this morning. All right. Read it with me, okay? The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's a good one, isn't it? All right. Um, I've got some announcements for you this morning. Uh, first of all, no uh, activities this evening. Um, the church office is also going to be closed tomorrow in observance of Labor Day. We have a business meeting following uh, church next Sunday on the 11th. Um, we have some un- an update on the land sale and the appraisal, so we wanted to talk about that. You know, we met last summer and discussed that, so we have some new information that we're going to bring to the church next week, so just be um, Be in prayer for that, and and please be in attendance. Um, We also have a family ministry leadership meeting. So everyone who is a leader or volunteer who works in the preschool, the elementary, or with student ministries, we're going to be meeting September the 18th at 5 p.m. in C Building, which is the children's building back there. Um, So please be in attendance if you're a volunteer in those areas. Also, Dr. Cole has asked um, that we... Um, are, are trying to get a group together to, for interest in the ESL ministry that we used to have. Of course, we was very vibrant up and before COVID, and, and since then we have not been able to get it going, but we're interested in trying to see if, if there's interest there. It was just a great ministry uh, during the time that we were doing it before, and so we're eager to, uh, to try to get that up and going. So you can contact Dr. Cole. I have his number here. I also have his email. I'm not going to read it out, but his number is Four two three three five six six. Is that the right one, Dr. Cole? All right. Uh, so if you're interested, please reach out to him, okay? All right. And then also the Baldwin Baptist Association's meeting it will be Saturday, October the 15th at Baymanette uh, First Baptist Church. And so if you're interested in going, you can contact Michelle. Um, you do have to be a member of Faith Family, um, but we're, we certainly would uh, support you if you want to go. Um, anyway... So that's our announcements this morning. Uh, If you will, bow with me in prayer as we start this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, what an honor it is to be in your house, 
with brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, in fellowship. But most importantly, coming into your house to worship a God who loves us and a God who is over all things. We're so thankful for the opportunity, Lord. We're thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, and what he's done in our lives. Lord, I pray this morning that our hearts be full of gratitude and love and adoration and praise. Uh, I lift up Dr. Ab this morning as he comes to preach later on, Lord, that his words be, be your words to us this morning. Lord, we, we thank you for your continued blessings. Lord, again, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church family, let's stand as we continue to worship through song. Do this. 
this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released, I can sing, I am free, and not I, but through Christ.
because of the circumstances here. But Lord, because what you have done, 
Father, 2,000 years ago on that cross, paying the price for our sin, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, not in part, but the whole. God, thank you. God, help us remember that it is you who works through us. Father, that when we can, because we can stand, the reason we can stand and sing, the reason that we can do good is because you are working in us. So God, thank you. God, I pray that as Ab, Dr. Ab brings the word, Lord, that you will give us ears to hear, but Father, more importantly, hearts to understand. God, that we will leave this building, this sanctuary, better equipped to be your church that we can love those around us as you have called us to do. That we can love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that we can love our neighbor as ourselves. So Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your son. Father, we love you and we praise you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. morning, everybody. Guess who? It's me again. I was asking uh, Karen, I said, when did I get to teach a lot lately? And then it occurred to me why. We're anticipating a new pastor, and we're all excited to who the Lord may appoint. And I think the elders decided, let's put Ab up there a little bit, so we really will appreciate that new pastor when he comes. He will be First rate in contrast, no matter who the guy is. So, but I'm still grateful to be here because I love to study God's word. I love preparing to teach. My only problem, as you know, is I usually end up with too little material. So I'll, I'll try to amplify it as best I can. Um, I pray the Lord will use this time today to teach us. Yet again, the whole truth concerning God's character. I'm really kind of focused on that lately. The Lord is burning it into my heart to really look at him, to understand him, to seek after him, and uh, his enduring revelation to all mankind that comes by way of Scripture. In the last two sermons, we've focused a lot on the importance of theology and doctrine, how we study Scripture and the conclusions we reach are critical. <clears throat> and they're critical both in our personal lives and they're critical in the biblical function of our church. And so it's an appropriate time for us to have this assessment together and to prepare as we look forward to the next uh, dispensation of Faith Family Church. Where do we go from here and what does our worship and our study look like? Uh, in this brief overview, we've looked at the importance of proper study of God our theology, and the glorious nature that he reveals through Scripture. Um, 
I want to remind you that I've emphasized, and I think it remains important, I want to make mention of it again, that the Bible must serve as our primary point of study so that our understanding of God and his revelations proceed first and primarily through Scripture. If our study of God, our theology is biblical, then our conclusions and our positions of doctrine will also be biblical. And if we collectively as a church body are scriptural in our doctrines, guess what? We will have unity of belief, unity of organization, ministry, fellowship, and purpose. And so as we talk today, because I'm going to talk about another area of doctrine, we have to remember that all theology and doctrine is interconnected interconnected. It's overlapping. You can't touch one point of doctrine without touching multiple points of doctrine. You can't study the doctrine of God without confronting the doctrine of man, Christ, sin, salvation, justification, and all the others. Our time today will not allow us to completely review all of those topics, but just as a brief reminder, the God that we serve is magnificent. We must begin every moment that we contemplate the word, every moment that we go to prayer, the magnificence of the one to whom we are given access to. He's powerful, he's omniscient, loving, but listen, he is also deliberate in all of the actions that he takes. Ours is not a passive God but rather he is one who directs our lives day by day, moment by moment, according to the perfect execution of his will. He's not just sitting up on the throne watching us wander about. He is directing our steps in everything we do. He is divinely sovereign regarding all matters of life and godliness. In stark contrast, The character of man is fallen, sinful, depraved, and lifeless. Hate to keep kicking you, but as Paul said, there's nothing in my flesh that is of any value, nothing that's any good. Before regeneration, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, incapable of any choice or action that would gain merit before the Lord. And there's literally nothing that we can do that has salvific power. God is the only source of conversion, the only source of our rebirth. At the foundation of the world, our creator and savior predestined those that he would save. The Greek word translated as predestined is actually a verb, a verb denoting deliberate action. God not only had foreknowledge of who and who would not be saved, by his choice the Lord predetermined, he preordained who would respond to his effectual call. For these the gospel is irresistible. God's elect are compelled, they are forcibly compressed through and toward this single narrow gate, which is the only way of eternal life. So consequently, the next essential study point must be the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've talked a lot about God, we've talked a lot about man, we've talked about the things there too connected, but the doctrine of Christ is very deep and very rich. 
when you reach when you begin to step into that study it's like you've fallen into an ocean that's so vast you can hardly tell how to turn or what to do but our study of man and god has revealed a gigantic gulf the space between the divine and the natural between perfection and depravity it is too great for human comprehension and it requires a supernatural intervention which is christ alone As we ponder our knowledge of Jesus, we must confront some hard questions. How have I studied and learned about the Lord? From what sources of information have I developed my belief, my doctrine concerning Christ? And just as there are biblical and unbiblical renditions of God, there are correct and incorrect positions of understanding concerning the Christ of Scripture. Since the Father and the Son are two persons of the Trinity, along with the Holy Spirit, there is great unity found in the biblical descriptions of God the Father and God the Son. As Jesus said repeatedly, in one way or another, I and the Father are one. Therefore, we must not attempt, and this is the first doctrinal point of great importance, we must not attempt to divide the harmony of the Godhead by attributing some character aspects to God and others to Christ, and still others to the Holy Spirit. The Father and Son are unified in all regard, as the Scriptures will reveal. As I looked at this question, scripturally, there's one obvious place for us to begin with this biblical survey of Jesus. The Lord himself asked this very question in Matthew 16. I know you're familiar with this, but we're going to go through this at some length because it is uh, remarkably uh, profound and uh, challenging. In verse 13 of Matthew 16, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He, Jesus, said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Wow. Let's pray. Father God, I... I want to pause and just turn to you, Lord, in great reverence. Lord, I'm weak today as I stand before your word because it, uh, although it's a passage that we know very well, it is a passage that tells us so much about who you are and how you desire to be seen by your people. Father, uplift us and 
hold our hearts steady before you. Open us to this examination, God, that we may truly be changed and that our draw and our surrender to the Lord Jesus will be greater than before we arrive today. God, as your people, we cry out for your help. We beg you for your attention to our great and exhaustive need. And we pray, God, that somehow you can find some way to bring glory through these vessels, these people of your church, Lord, who long to serve you and to honor you. God, help us, I pray, and lead us as only you can do our Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, to understand the fullness of this conversation that Jesus had with his disciples, I want to go verse by verse, of course. Verse 13, come into the district, and he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 13. Notice that Jesus asked for the opinion of people. People. In his question, Jesus identified himself as what? The Son of Man. And that's a term that the Jews would recognize as a statement of divinity. Okay, so he's asking, really, do the people know who I am? Do they know that I am the Son of Man, that I am the promised Messiah? The book of Daniel provides this Old Testament reference to the Messiah as the Son of Man. In Daniel 7, Daniel relates this vision. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given, listen to this now, To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Here we see the authority and the eternality of Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In John 3, 35 and 36, the Lord said, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. We should never underestimate we should never forget the authority of Christ the dominion of Christ the power of Christ Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 beginning in verse 20 he God raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come.
by using the title Son of Man rather than the Son of God. Jesus also signifies, along with his divinity, his personal humanity. And this becomes as important as his authority and his dominion. Jesus is a singular manifestation of this dual identity. The Lord is completely God and completely man simultaneously. Can can you understand that? I don't think I can understand that. Scripture helps us to understand to some degree this mystery by detailing both realities, the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. I love this passage from Colossians. I, I think you will too. You've probably read it many times. But in Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15, Paul writes that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together. Again, Jesus' authority is a natural expression of the Godhead. The unity of the Father and the Son, Holy Spirit. Christ is the power of God and heaven manifested on earth. And our Lord is an eternal being. This is another message throughout this, these texts. He is present at the creation of the world, and his reign is forevermore. It is unceasing. In the book of Revelation, Jesus states plainly. Revelation 1.8, I am what? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Christians, I think we must take special notice when the Lord says something about himself directly to us. When he says, this is who I am, we had better take note of that. And he says he is the beginning and the end. He is the Almighty. Now, Scripture also verifies the Lord's humanity. Isaiah 7, verse 14 says, The prophecy of Christ, you know it well. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. And what is the sign? Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. Jesus was born of a human mother virgin birth. The humanity of Christ was determined through God's providential choice to to employ a human parent. In his earthly form, Jesus could have been created through any manner God elected. Right? Think back to the creation story. Think of the ways that God created man and woman. How he created the animals. He could have created Jesus any way he wanted. But he saw fit to create a personal and physical union of heaven and earth. 
this dual nature reflects the relational bridge needed to close the gulf between man and God. See, Jesus had to be both human and divine to become the remedy for our fallen state. There was no other solution. Verse 15 of the Isaiah passage indicates that Jesus also, like other humans, grew up physically, mentally, socially, and he matured in wisdom. It says that he will eat curds and honey. Jesus ate food. He he hungered. He had thirst. He had emotion. And he says that he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. Thus, Jesus, like all children, grew up in the, the knowledge to choose good and reject evil. The truth of Christ's humanity is echoed in the New Testament when an angel visited Joseph. You remember that, right? Matthew 10, I'm sorry, Matthew 1, verse 20. The angel said to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, going back to Isaiah, the passage we just read. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which translated means God with us. So again, we see the harmony of the Old Testament and the New Testament as the Bible continually interprets and affirms itself consistently and perfectly. This unity of Old and New Testament is vital to our understanding of the fullness of Christ. Christ existed before the Gospels were written. Christ existed before he was born of a virgin. Christ was with God at the beginning. Hebrews 4.15 gives another picture of Christ's humanity. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet, what? Without sin. So Jesus felt human emotion, sympathy. He grieved and wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Remember that? He had righteous indignation and anger when he cleared the temple of the money changers. He certainly expressed and felt love. He felt what you feel. He understands what it is to be weak, although he himself was sinless. He knows through his experience what the human life is like. Indeed, Jesus was sinless, and this is well documented in Scripture. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to what? To be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here's a question maybe you can help me with. 
people ask me pretty often if Jesus could truly be tempted since he's God. How do you tempt God with sin? Well, I contend that yes, it was possible for Jesus to sin. But he didn't. Why didn't he? Why is this important? Well, he was obedient to the Father. He also was our example. He demonstrated a life which we are to emulate, follow. But also, and maybe most importantly, the Lord had to remain sinless to become an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He is our guilt offering. And as John the Baptist announced, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This sacrifice was required to answer God's justice and assuage his wrath. It was necessary, it says in Hebrews 9.22, that according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. You cannot be cleansed but by the blood of Christ. The blood must be shed for the remission of sin. It says here, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There had to be a death. There had to be a sacrifice. There had to be blood shed. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 18, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with what? But with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Unblemished and spotless, Christ, the Passover lamb, had to be without defilement. He had to be without sin in action. He had to be without sin even in his heart. There was a purity required the lamb. In the Old Testament, the Passover lamb is described this way. Exodus 12, 5. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Also, the guilt offering is described in Leviticus 6, verses 6 and 7. It says, Then he shall bring to the priest his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock according to your valuation for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for any one of the things which he may have done to incur guilt. Unblemished, without defect, spotless, this was our Savior. The foreshadowing of Christ throughout the Old Testament is profound. Returning to our text, we're all the way up to verse 14 already. We're flying through this. They answered Jesus' question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So the answer was no. The people did not acknowledge the divinity of Christ. He was not recognized as the promised Messiah, nor did they even recall the Old Testament foretelling of the Messiah, or they might have recognized him. 
Rather, the people considered Jesus to be a prophet like John, Elijah, or Jeremiah. Perhaps some of the people recalled the Old Testament prophecy concerning the forerunner of Christ. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament before we move into the Gospels, Malachi 4 or 5, it says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So before the Messiah comes, before the judgment of God comes, Elijah will come to make way for the Savior. But by this time in biblical history, Jesus had already proclaimed this prophecy of Elijah fulfilled. He did this in his tribute that he gave to the greatness of John the Baptist. In uh, Matthew eleven fourteen, 14, Jesus said, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. So Jesus is saying the forerunner already came. I'm identifying him as John the Baptist, the manifestation of Elijah in this present time. Also by this time, John the Baptist had been executed. Jeremiah is not even individually referenced in the Old Testament as one to appear before the Messiah comes. I think the reference to him and other prophets indicate Lapses in biblical understanding and a clear rejection of Jesus as Savior. So while Jesus was held in high regard, the people did not believe the Messiah had come. Our current world proclaims a similar ignorance. Jesus is defined in many ways by the unbeliever, but his true identity and therefore his full authority is not honored. Most have no understanding of God, and Christ in Scripture. And as we have discussed, man's imagination of the divine has been humanized. We imagine a God and Savior more like ourselves. That's why we like Jesus better than that God of the Old Testament. You heard people say that? The God of the Old Testament, he opened up the earth and he killed people. He had people take swords and slaughter some of the Israelites. He brought nations against Israel. He had snakes bite everybody. But Jesus, well, you know, Jesus was kind and loving and gentle and he walked with sinners and, and he had grace and love and affection. He did. I often tell people, if you want to see the unity of God of the Old Testament and Jesus, read Revelation. Read about the wrath of the Lamb when the Lord expresses his dominion and authority that has been granted to him by the Father. Look, even believers break down the Godhead to the lowest common denominator. We simplify the character of God to match our own design, whatever we like. God is love. God wants me to be happy. God has given me a personal, although unscriptural, sign of acceptance. And we define God's will according to our emotions. I have peace about it. Listen, Jesus brings peace. He said before his crucifixion, my peace I leave with you. 
My peace, not the peace as the world gives to you, but my peace. There's a distinction between the peace of Christ and the peace of the world. But most of the time when people say, I have peace about it, I've been in a counseling room a long time, they're saying they've worked out a concession in their own heart. They now feel okay about what they're about to do. God has given me peace about divorcing my wife. God's given me peace about whatever unscriptural decision that I choose to make. And people will justify their actions of disobedience according to their emotion. See, here's the other thing. The Christ of Scripture can only be recognized by those to whom God selects. Ours is not a universal salvation. Paul wrote in Romans 9, 18. He says, so then he, God, has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Hard truth, isn't it? He has mercy upon whom he has mercy and he has compassion upon whom he has compassion, but also he hardens whom he desires. Without the salvific work of God, all others lack heavenly empowerment to make an accurate discernment. Even if they were studious of Scripture. You know, you can read Scripture thoroughly. I've known lots of unbelievers who read the Bible more than some of us. But they do not have a personal salvific relationship with Christ. They don't know Him. For example, the Pharisees knew the Old Testament law and the prophets in great detail, didn't they? But they had no drawing unto faith. Nicodemus, John 3, was a Pharisee and a teacher of Israel, and he knew the Old Testament intimately. Yet he was not born again until the providential movement of God and, of course, a late-night visit from the Messiah. So to recognize the Son of Man, we need both the instruction of the Word and the providential drawing of God to occur. Back to our text, Jesus now gets to the crux of his inquiry. He turns his gaze to the disciples. He asks them, but who do you say that I am? This question is for the disciples to examine their own hearts and affirm or deny their faith in the Lord Jesus. This question, I believe, is also for us today. This question exposes our hearts and begs an examination of our true doctrine and our true status before the Lord, and it is a point of our study today. He's saying, church, faith family, ab, who do you say that I am? Ask people sometimes when you're evangelizing, to you, who is Jesus? You get some interesting answers. Sometimes you get interesting answers from fellow believers. But Simon answered, Simon Peter answered, he said, you are the Christ 
the Son of the living God. Peter answered quickly and with great assurance. It seems like Peter was speaking for everybody. Yet we know that in this group sat Judas Iscariot, who would betray Christ. And we know that even the other disciples struggled with their own belief. Thomas doubted. Even Peter himself denied Christ at the crucifixion. So why is it then, as it says in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, many are called, but few are chosen? While all the disciples and thousands of followers had been with Jesus, only certain ones received the full knowledge of God necessary for salvation. Speaking of the Holy Spirit and the reception of truth, Jesus said in John 16, 13, that when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. So how did Peter know? Was he impulsive or was he inspired? Was he rushed or was he compelled? Realize that at this time, Jesus had not fully revealed his identity even to the disciples. But yet Peter knew the answer. When many of the followers of Jesus abandoned him, Peter gave another proclamation of faith. In John 6, Jesus had just told everybody that my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. And the disciples said, teacher, this is a hard saying. Who can bear it? And his followers began to peel away because the message and the cost of the gospel was hammering upon their hearts. And Jesus said in verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning, Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless he has been granted, it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Now listen to this. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also. You know, the gospel is preached in the scriptures as often to professing believers as it is to the lost people. Paul says, examine yourselves, test yourself to see if indeed you are of the faith. You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter, again, first in line, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Many left and only a few remained. The true gospel is very, very divisive. 
Jesus said in Luke 12, 51, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. He came to do the work of the Father. What he saw the Father doing, he did. He did nothing of his own initiative. He did what he was instructed to do. Jesus said in John 15, beginning in verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. So I chose you to be mine. I adopted you as my child, and I also appointed you to bear fruit, to work in the kingdom's activity. Verse 26, when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. How do we testify? How do we evangelize? How do we share Christ with other people? Is because we are in relationship. We know Christ. We know the scriptural Christ. We have been transformed and changed by his word and his presence, our proximity to the Lord in our lives. As part of the triune God, Jesus shares in the sovereignty of God over salvation. Remember, the love of Christ controls us. Remember that last week? His love compels us. Back to our core verse, verse 17. After this exclamation that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Here Jesus affirms that Peter's knowledge of truth is what? Supernatural. Not because he's a brilliant theologian. Not because he's an educated person. But truth has been imposed upon Peter. Granted to Peter. This truth is divinely dispersed according to the will of God. Isn't that the type of revelation that you want to experience? And don't you want that revelation that comes from God the Father that is very different than any other revelation that your brother or your uncle or your preacher or anybody can give you? It is a revelation that comes by the Word of God taught, interpreted, and inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's the truth I want for you. But then sometimes I don't want that truth, do I? I desire it, I chase after it, I want to know it, but when it comes, sometimes it upsets my status quo, my manner of life, my mindset. It's a knowledge that depends not only on emotion, like experiential or charismatic theology. Although 
the revelation of God should and does stir human feelings. You're not wrong if you have emotion in response to the Savior. But it's not enough by itself. Neither is the knowledge cerebral only. This type of knowledge far exceeds academic study if that study lacks the empowerment of God's spirit like the Pharisees. However, scriptural truth is essential to salvation and to the recognition of one's need for Jesus Christ. Without a rudimentary understanding of God's nature, man's condition, confession and surrender are not possible. Now look, I'm not saying that anybody has to have a specific amount of knowledge about theology and doctrine to be saved. That's not the point I'm making. Most of us, when we encounter the Lord, don't know anything. Although some do. Some have been raised with the truth. Some have been schooled in the truth. But a lot of us, I didn't know anything. We spend our entire lives and perhaps eternity searching after the wondrous mystery of God. But a true presentation of the gospel must include the reading of scripture that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. I see evangelists all the time. They present the gospel without ever using God's word. They appeal to the desire of the human. You have a sin problem. Don't you want your behavior to change? You're headed for hell. Wouldn't you prefer to go to heaven? Your marriage is about to fall apart. Don't you want to save your relationship? That is not the foundation of the biblical gospel. You understand that, right? I mean, that's not what the gospel is about. Those are secondary byproducts of transformation, not primary products of the gospel. Any complete sharing of the gospel must point to the glory of God, the fallen and hopeless condition of man, the remedy of Christ, the promise of hope, the recognition of cost. Yes, the gospel carries a cost. It must include the call of godly sorrow and repentance. Can one be saved without repentance? And a confession of faith. It requires a confession of faith. And theologians debate on whether that faith comes before or after regeneration. But how does one dead in his trespasses and sins have faith? Wouldn't he have to come to life first? Look, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but through me. We've said that many times. He also said in John 6, it is written in the prophets, back and forth between the New Testament and the Old, written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. They are all of God's people. They shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Look at the last two verses. I did say last. 
but it's still going to be a little while. Verse 18, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Wow. So here the Lord enthusiastically gives endorsement to the work that is underway. He says, you are Peter. Simon is given a new name that represents his new nature. He's also given an appointment, a calling of God. Peter will be a participant and a leader in the foundation of God's church. But here's where scholars divide again. What are you going to do about scholars? People just, they're so smart, you just, they can't, they, they make themselves crazy they're so smart. I'm from Robertsdale, I ain't that smart. So what I do, I read the word. Leonard Ravenhill is an old preacher. He's dead now. I like dead preachers. Not that I want all preachers to be dead. I just like the old preachers who are now dead. I didn't mean, I didn't mean go kill preachers. Nothing like that. But he said, one day, somebody deep in the jungle somewhere is going to find the Bible, and they're going to read it and believe it. And we're going to all stand ashamed. Do you believe it when you read it? Or are you, is it, your mind cluttered up with too much other smart, intelligent stuff that you got in other places? Look, some of those scholars claim that Peter is the rock. While others teach that Christ alone is the foundation of the church. And I imagine that most sermons you have heard identify Peter as the rock that Jesus built. I don't know why, but people get really mad when I talk about this. But I believe the scriptures indicate otherwise. Dan Fenimore just tilted her head. I'm a little nervous now. Look, if we could view the discourse between Peter and Jesus, I believe it would look like this. You say, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Why do you say that? Well, here's my biblical argument. Paul wrote, speaking of the exodus from Israel in 1 Corinthians 10, he said, If I did not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Here, Christ is placed contextually at the core of the Old Testament. There are many such statements in the Old and New Testament that affirm and ratify the centrality of Christ as the primary focus of Scripture. King David spoke of God as the rock. 2 Samuel 22 and verse 2, he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my rock, I'm sorry, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. God, my rock. 
my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. David again writes in Psalm 18, verse 46, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. Of course, you know Jesus' parable, Matthew 7, 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on rock. Isaiah 28, 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. I didn't want to leave the scholars totally out of my conversation because I want you to think that I'm smart like they are. So the the scholars look at the language. They look at the Greek and the Aramaic language. Simon's name was changed to Peter, which is Sipha in Aramaic. Sipha means stone or fragment of of a rock. The meaning is the same in the Greek. Therefore, Peter is a stone, fragment, or chip of the rock, which is Christ. Use our human vernacular, Peter is a chip off the old block. But he is not the original foundational rock which steadies the universe. Why is this important? Because the unified integrity of Scripture from Old to New Testament is important. Christ was at the beginning. He is foreshadowed in history, characters, miracles, and stories throughout the Old Testament. There are between 300 and 550 specific prophetic references in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And that variation from 300 to 550 has more to do with the scholar who's studying the statements and some say well this is prophetic and this is not so it's another one of those high level debates Christ Christ is the centerpiece of the Bible make no mistake about it the Bible is all about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ Jesus confronted the Pharisees and their endless study that led to wrong conclusions. And he said in John 5, verses 39 and 40, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, it is these scriptures that testify about me. You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Look, Jesus is not critical of scriptural scriptural inquiry. He does not challenge the veracity of God's written word, but he condemns the Pharisees for their ritualistic study and their effort to display external expressions of righteousness. In their personal examination of the Bible, they found themselves to be in godly order. They failed to recognize their broken state and their need for salvation. Therefore, they failed to see Jesus in the scriptures because they are satisfied, prideful, 
and they're unwilling to bend to God's authority. Jesus said in Mark 7, verse 6, talking about the Pharisees, these, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. I don't want to be in that condition, church. I hope you don't either. You don't want to be people going through the mechanics of Christianity and missing the very personal and real encounter and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now concerning God's church, the Lord says in the last part of verse 18, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Victory is proclaimed, eternity is established, God's church will persevere. Even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And because Christ, the Son of God, is the foundational rock, its chief cornerstone, neither can the foundation of faith be undone. God will see to the perseverance of the saints. He will see to your salvation. Concerning our security and salvation, Jesus said, and you know this one, I love this one, don't you? It's in John 10, beginning in verse 27. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them, I give them eternal life and they will never, never, ever, 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 never, ever perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Not man, not Satan, not sin, nothing will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, and I and the Father are, what, one. So why is our salvation unassailable? How is it that we can rest in the assurance of eternal life? Well, as a great living creature, Bodhi Bauckham, says, folks, if we could lose our salvation, we surely would up to us we would surely find a way to do it praise God it's not up to us God is the author and perfecter of faith remember that Hebrews 12 2 he is the initiator of salvation foreknown predestined and settled before the foundation of the world and according to Philippians 1 6 he is faithful to complete his work In that verse it says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And concerning the church at the end times, Revelation 20 beginning in verse 14 says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Gates of hell will not prevail against it. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The church is victorious and the elect of God will endure, but death, hell, and those whose names are absent from the book of life are thrown forever into the lake of fire ever to arise again. Final verse. 
verse 19. Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Isn't that exciting? Don't you feel powerful with those keys? When I was in high school, my father used to give me the keys to his Pontiac Catalina. I think I, think I had two dates in high school. I got to drive the car both times. But guess what? God's... My father, I said, I want my father God. That's almost close. My father still owned that car, didn't he? He gave me the keys, but he still owned the vehicle. You've got to understand that as believers, you are joint heirs with Jesus. And we have the keys of entry to eternal life. Along with the responsibility and authority exercised in our submission to Christ. But make sure you notice something important about this statement about the keys to the kingdom. It says, whatever you bind will have been bound in heaven, past tense. Whatever you loose will have been loosed, past tense, in heaven. You are not given the power to go around binding and loosing things in Jesus' name. You're not. What you're doing is you're stepping into a work that is already completed in heaven. You're binding what has been bound. You're loosing what has been loosed. God brings you into the kingdom's activity. All you're doing is you're answering with accountability the call to serve. But the outcome is according to the will of God, not according to your work, your preaching, your teaching, your service, your songs that you sing. According to God's will. In Mark 4.26, Jesus told the following parable. He said, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. You're out there seeding, Sowing seeds. That farmer, he goes to bed at night and he gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He, how? He himself does not know. Soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head, but when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has Your success in ministry is not defined by the outcome. God determines the outcome. Your success is defined by your obedience to the appointment. You cannot see where it is leading. If you notice in uh, Hebrews 11, the patriarchs that are highlighted as the hall of fame of faith, they were all imperfectly faithful in their service to the Lord, but most never saw the completion of their ministry. They never saw the fulfillment of the promise that they served their entire life. Yet they remained dutiful to stay in the activity until God completed it, God released them, or God brought them home.
But what can we conclude? We conclude that Jesus is no forerunner. The forerunner has already come in the person of John the Baptist. Jesus is not a prophet or a teacher only. He is the Son of Man, the Son of God, the long-anticipated Messiah. Jesus rightly identified, is rightly identified by Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This revelation was not delivered by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. It is a revelation appointed by God to his elected servant, Peter. It comes through scriptural truth and the working of the Holy Spirit who teaches and interprets the word. It is not a revelation accepted or heard by all. But according to God's sovereign election, the truth is revealed to a predetermined number, including Peter. text teaches that Christ is indeed part of the Godhead. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He has dominion, he has authority, he has eternality. And as we said earlier, Jesus is the centerpiece of Scripture. The Scriptures testify of me, he said. He is not only the, pat, he's not only the pervasive focus of the written word, Jesus is the essential word. He is a personal representation of God's stated intent. You know, in Scripture, sometimes the Bible talks about the Word, and it means the written Word, it means the Old Testament. But in John 1, verse 1, Jesus is referred to as the Word. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's a fairly unified Statement, is it not? In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace. I think the challenge for us, church, is that we not become a scholar. We're probably, and most of us are not called to such a lofty position. But we are called to a personal relationship, service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that we belong to him by way of the word and by way of the appeal of the Holy Spirit, which transforms and changes and interprets for us the meaning of the word. And so Jesus Christ is a relational Savior. And the totality of Scripture points us to be near Him. The greatest overarching will of God is that we worship Him, we honor Him, we, we serve Him and Him only, that we are obedient to His teachings 
I assure you that your proximity to the Lord Jesus Christ, your nearness to Christ, will determine everything about your life, and everything about your spiritual life and your physical life. Christ is your authority. He is also your empowerment. And as you see, the well is very, very deep in our effort to understand the Lord. And we could do a hundred sermons and never get to the bottom of that well. But you should make it your practice to know this Jesus very, very personally. Pay attention to the word. Ask of the word, what are you saying? Ask the Lord to teach you. As you are drawn and as the scriptures become enlightened, take hold of them and wait. It's not something you need to do. There's not a choice you need to make. There's a process and activity that you need to begin, which is to open God's word and seek for this marvelous, marvelous inner peace of all that the Bible teaches. I, had a, I have one celebrity friend. You won't even know him. That's how much of a celebrity he is. But when I was working in Green Bay, I got to meet this pro football player named Javier uh, Baja Biamil. You probably know him very well, right? He was an all-pro defensive end a while back. But he grew up a Muslim. And I said, how did you come to know the Lord? And he said, well, I didn't think much of Christians because they didn't know anything. They're weak. Their lives were sinful, and they didn't obey the laws that they had. And I wasn't interested. And I'd ask them questions, and nobody would have an answer and they'd say I'll get back to you on that but they never got back to me I gave up on them but one guy didn't know the answer but got back to Kabir Kabir asked him another question and he got back to Kabir so how did you become born again he said well I opened the Bible and I began reading in Genesis well, you don't, nobody reads in Genesis to get saved, right? You give them the Gospel of John. That's where we send everybody, right? I challenge my students, can you preach the Gospel from any book of the Bible? That's a good challenge. I wish I could do it. Because I think it's there. It's right there. He said, I began to read in Genesis when I got to Genesis 6 that every thought of man was continuously evil. He said, I recognize how deplorable my life was, how sinful I am. And while I claim to be a Muslim, I'm immoral, I'm an idolater. And he, he picked it up right away. He was broken to the point that he called that guy who got him answers and said, what do I do? You hear that question sometimes in Scripture, don't you? What must I do to be saved? And the friend went to him and showed him the Scriptures. 
became blue. Don't underestimate the power of the word. It has an authority of its own. But also recognize that Christ himself is the word. Don't ever go in with the word without the Lord. He will help you and you will impact people's lives for the good of the kingdom. Let's pray together and let's ask the Lord to continually Feed us and teach us and grow us, whether we are in Christ or whether we have yet to give our lives to Christ. The Bible is still our guide. And even if you're uncertain about your salvation, you should go back to Scripture and you should continue to read and pray and meditate upon what the Bible is showing you, that the Spirit of God, my Father who is in heaven, will to you what you have not yet seen. And as believers, we must pray for more belief. Lord, help my unbelief. Challenge my fallen heart, God, and help me, Lord, to grow into your likeness. Please, Lord, would you show me that while I believe, show me my heart, my defilement. Help me to stand and help me to move and help me to pray. And help our church, God, I would pray too that you will prepare our hearts for our new pastor. Father, we turn to you in closing and we just honor your great and wondrous name. We honor the Godhead. We praise the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for the dominion, the reign of authority that belongs only to you. We praise you, God, for the work of the Holy Spirit that awakens us, that brings us to life and gives us hope and helps us to recognize the power and the veracity of your word. God, help us, please, Lord, that if we have not known you, if we have not made our lives a commitment to you, God, Would you draw us, please, God, I beg you. And for those of us who believe and who are nourished by your presence, we just pray for more great grace day by day that we may grow in our obedience and our understanding. We praise you, Lord. We thank you, God, so for who you are, for all that you are, what you're doing in our midst. We honor you this day, Lord. Now we will stay we'll be here Pastor Matt